morning. That last dunk you saw in the shadow there, that was actually me on a seven-foot goal. It's good to see you. I want you to take out your Bibles. I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4. And uh, it's going to be a great day. We just sang some great songs. You appreciate this worship team. They work hard. Come on, give them a hand. They a tremendous job every week. They sang a song, Show Us Your Glory. How many of you know we're not like Moses in the Old Testament that went to the mountain of God and saw the glory of God as a mist? We're not the children of Israel that trekked around the wilderness for 40 years and were led by a fire by night and a cloud by day. That was a form of glory in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we beheld the glory of God when we saw Jesus at salvation. The glory of God in the New Testament is not a cloud, it's not fire, it's not chill bombs, it's Jesus. And that's why we're here today. It's all about Jesus. John chapter 1, we beheld his glory as the glory is the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace. I mean, you know, Jesus is full of grace. Anybody need grace? Anybody need grace? But he's also full of truth. You need both of them. We need grace and truth. So today we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to talk about rebound again, and uh, I do have a basketball in my hands. This is not a full-size basketball. Some of y'all are thinking, man, he's got some huge hands. <laughs> it is actually a youth basketball, and, uh, and we're going to talk about today the second point to our series. Before I get there, I want to tell you a story about Michael Jordan. As you can see, I'm wearing some UNC colors. That's just osmosis for you. <laughs> Michael Jordan was a great uh, college basketball player. He hit a winning shot in the national championship, and he was actually... Uh, recruited by many teams in the NBA, but he, in 1984, was the third overall pick uh, in the 1984 draft. And immediately he went to the Chicago Bulls and he made a difference on the team. He elevated that team. That team automatically became a lot better. While he was there, he got hurt. And in 1985, he had a setback. Say setback. He had a setback, and uh, he actually broke a bone in his left foot, and it made him lose six weeks of the season. And eventually, he missed 65 games. But because he was young, he healed quickly, and he never had any lasting impact because of that broken bone in his foot. He went on to win six NBA championships out of eight years. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good. But after his third championship, in July of that year, in the mid-1990s, his father was traveling on Interstate 95 in Lumberton, North Carolina, and he stopped beside the road to take a nap. He was exhausted. And two teenagers came by and robbed him and killed him, shot him. And eventually took his body into the edge of South Carolina, McCall, South Carolina. I know that name because I lived five miles from McCall, South Carolina. Actually, I grew up in North Carolina, but I grew up on the North Carolina and South Carolina line. They dumped him into a creek and left his body there. His body was there for 11 days. It decayed. They found his body. Actually, a fisherman found his body in the creek. I had fished that creek many times growing up. He found his body there. They cremated this guy, Michael Jordan's dad, because they didn't know who he was. He was a missing person. But several weeks after the death of Michael Jordan's dad, they discovered that it was Michael Jordan's dad that was killed. And two months after Michael Jordan's dad's death, Michael Jordan shocked the sports world when he retired from the game of basketball. He was mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted, not just from winning three NBA championships consecutively, but the overwhelming agony and pain on his mind that his dad was brutally murdered and left in a creek by uh, two teenagers. 
And so he retired. It shocked the sports world. And he, to, to really gain perspective, he went into a baseball. Baseball. Now, he grew up playing baseball in high school, but he wasn't a great major league baseball player. He only played in the minor league. He did hit a home run. But in baseball, he, he gained his fire back. He gained his passion back. He gained his perspective back. And 18 months later, he went back into the NBA. He was renewed, refreshed. He was able to rebound from the mental agony that he suffered from. And, and when he got back into the NBA, it was the old Michael Jordan. Nobody wanted him to come back, especially Charles Barkley and... Patrick Ewing and all these guys who were defeated by him and lo and behold he again won three consecutive championships making it six out of eight. I don't know about you but that's a great rebound in life. He rebounded from a broken foot. He rebounded from his father's death uh, to go on to win six NBA championships in eight years. Last week, we talked about what makes a good rebounder. Often, people think you have to be seven foot to be a great rebounder. You have to have long arms or big hands. All those things help. But we learned last week, in order to be a good rebounder, a great rebounder, you have to have the right mentality. And today, I want to talk about this subject today. You have to have the right position. You have to take the position. You have to get in position to get the rebound. Often when a rebound comes off the backboard or the rim, you have a split second to get into the position. And players, great basketball players, understand they have to box out. They have to get in position. They have to use their rear end sometimes to get people out of the paint in order to, to get the position that they need. So you have to, and I have to take our position. Now, as believers, our position is in Christ. Did you know when you got saved, the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ? It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit takes you and puts you into the body of Christ, and that becomes your position until you get to heaven. You are in Christ. And oftentimes, when we're in Christ, we allow things to push us out of our position. And we're going to go back to the story of Elijah and look up at Elijah's life and see how he got pushed out of his position. And there were some position thieves that caused him to be pushed out of his position. But let's read 1 Kings chapter 19, 3 and 4. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Anybody ever ran for your life? When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there. He left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, look what, he, look what happens, and prayed that he might die. Anybody ever prayed that you might die? He got so low in his life that he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Go down to verse 13. Verse 13 says, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now this text within context, we understand that Elijah prophesied that it would not rain for three and a half years in 1 Kings chapter 17. For the next three and a half years, it did not rain. God provided for him at the brook Kareth. There he gave him water. Ravens came and fed him. Eventually the brook dried up. He went to Zarephath where a widow would take care of him and give him uh, food every day. Eventually that widow's son died and Elijah was a mighty man of God, a prophet of God, a prophet to Judah and he raised her son up and the guy lived again. He meets with Ahab in chapter 18 of 1 Kings and Ahab uh, despised Elijah and in chapter 19, we see that uh, Jezebel wants to kill Elijah because in chapter 18, 
Elijah kills 450 prophets of Baal. And he calls down fire from heaven because his God was the true and living God. And so when we get to this point in the story, Elijah is exhausted. He had been through many battles. He had gone through a, a famine that he prophesied, a drought. He, he confronts the spirit of death when he raises this young boy from the dead. He meets with Ahab. Ahab despises him. And then he has to run and get ahead of Ahab, going all the way to Jezreel. And then he meets Jezebel. And she says, I am going to take your life. And I'm going to do this by this time tomorrow. Guess what happens to Elijah? He runs. This guy, if you read this story, he's always on the run. He, he runs from Jezreel to Beersheba, which is about 100 miles. Now, I ran about a mile yesterday. I was exhausted. But he ran 100 miles away from Jezebel. In the New Testament, there is a verse that I love. It's John 10, 10. It says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And so we understand by that scripture, the thief in context is religion. And oftentimes that the enemy uses religion to steal from us. See, God came through his son, Jesus Christ, not to give us a religious order, not to give us something to do on Sunday morning, not to give us a rule book. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. And sometimes the enemy, the thief, whether it's religion itself or whether it's Satan himself, he comes to rob us of our position in Christ. And if he gets to rob us of our position in Christ, we begin to work out our own salvation with energy and religious effort. And we become people who try to save ourselves. And when you look at this story, there were some position thieves in the life of Elijah. The number one thief that Elijah faced was this thief called fear. Say fear. Amen. See, fear is a thief. It is Fear is false evidence appearing real. Did you know about 99% of the things you fear will never come to pass? How many of you had to deal with fear over the last year? Okay. That's about 50%. The other 50% are lying in church. <laughs> You're lying in church. Come on, let's repent. Lord, we repent right now. Jesus. <laughs> we all had to deal with fear over this last year. The fear of losing jobs. The fear of our businesses, you know, going all the way down. The fear of, of being locked in our homes. The fear of a virus. The, the fear of, of what the media was telling us all throughout what was going on. Because fear is a powerful emotion that we go through when we face difficult situations and circumstances. Fear can paralyze us. It keeps us from moving forward. But not only can fear paralyze us, but it can cause us to run. And that's exactly what Elijah did. He began to run. He ran from his position as a prophet to the nation of Israel. He was knocked off of his position because he was afraid. And being afraid caused him to run. He ran from Jezreel to Beersheba a hundred miles because he was afraid. He went from there a day's journey into the wilderness because he was afraid. Notice that fear drove him into the wilderness. It literally drove him into a barren place, an unproductive place, an unfruitful place, a lonely place. That fear that he was fighting drove him into a place where he was lonely and isolated. But you know, fear doesn't come from God. Miss Cat leading this morning in worship said, perfect love casts out all fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. 
That's the spirit that comes from God. The spirit of fear, it comes from our flesh or it comes from our enemy, but it is not from God. And so he began to cave into this thing called fear and he ran a hundred miles. He leaves his servant. He goes another day's journey into the wilderness. He isolates himself. Now the Old Testament, the wilderness was either a place where you were drugged unwillfully into the wilderness or you actually went into the wilderness to seek safe haven. And for Elijah, he ran into the wilderness because he was fearful of Jezebel and he was seeking you know, safe haven in the wilderness. He was running from Jezebel. See, Elijah found himself running from his problem. Can I ask you this? What problem are you running from that you won't confront? You might be saying, Pastor, I don't like confrontation. How many of you know you can confront in a healthy way? Some of you need to confront your children. Some of you need to confront your spouse. I'm talking about healthy confrontation. I'm not talking about yelling, throwing bottles and bricks and destroying your home. I'm talking about a healthy conversation where you can get your feelings out. In our house, we call them come to Jesus meetings. <laughs> the kids are not keeping their rooms clean and they're, they're eating, but they never pick up and wash a dish. How many of you know eventually we have a come to Jesus meeting? It is a healthy confrontation. But hey, you're grown. Wash your dish. Amen. Because <laughs> we're not your maid. And so he finds himself running from his problem. What is his problem? Most people would say Jezebel is his perceived problem. She said, I am going to kill you, Elijah. Jezebel seems like the logical answer, the logical solution, the, the logical thing that he's running from. But the real problem is not on the outside, Jezebel. The real problem is on the inside, fear. Fear. Fear caused him to run. He, he, he feels like he needs to save his own life. He felt like he had to take his own life in his hands. See, he was dependent upon God from chapter 17 all the way to 19. God fed him when there was a famine. God supplied for him. God was his keeper. God came down from heaven as fire and burned up the offering. God gave him the power to kill the prophets of Baal. And God was there. God was his provider. God was his solution. Even in Bathsheba, when he was there, before he went into the wilderness, it was a place of provision. It was the place of Abraham's well. The well that Abraham dug was there. That was a place of provision. God said, Abraham, God said, Elijah, I'm going to supply for you. But Abraham became so fearful that he took his own life in his own hands. How many of us, every day of our lives, are trying to save ourselves? We're trying to save our marriages. We're trying to save our children. We're trying to save our grandchildren. And God is scratching his head. He's like, man, you can't even lose the five pounds you've been trying to lose for the last 20 years. And you're trying to do all that? You're trying to take all that in your own hands? That's what Elijah was doing. He was taking his life in his own hands. He was taking his salvation in his own hands. He was trying to preserve and save his life by running from Jezebel. To ask you this question, whose hands are you putting your life in? Are you putting your hands in the life of God? Or are you putting your hands your life in your own hands. Jesus on the cross and Luke, while he was dying, knew who to put his life 
in the hands of. He said, Father, I place my life, or commit my life into your hands. At the point of death, Jesus understood that he was not going to save himself. Jesus placed his life in the hands of the Father. And because he placed the, his, hand, his life in the hands of the Father, guess what happened three days later? He rebounded in a mighty way. He was resurrected from the dead and declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection from the dead. Whose hands are you putting your life in? See, oftentimes in our media and in our world today, and it's become very pluralistic, and, and we adopt the ideology of this collective salvation. That all of us working together can save ourselves. I mean, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. If we all work together, we can save the planet. I can't even save my dog if he's dying. If we all get together, Islam, Buddhism, and Christianity, and all the other isms, if we all work together and understand all these things lead to one God, we can save our planet and we can save ourselves. It's called collective salvation. Christians have adopted it. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's for all the old folk in the house. If you're under 40, you don't understand that. <laughs> How? Well, if we get all the right people in politics, we can save America. Do you see Jesus ever teaching that in the New Testament? No. Jesus never really ever tried to confront Rome. But the church in America uses all its energy to confront political systems that have always been around. Now I'm not saying you, you back down and you don't vote because you ought to vote as an American citizen. But you must understand, it doesn't matter what we do. We can do all this work collectively and still America be broken. Why? Because salvation is not collective. Salvation is individual. Salvation is something that God does in the individual's heart through the person of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to change a nation, guess what? We don't do it by just keep pounding on laws. We do it by witnessing to people. We do it through salvation and we do it through uh, witnessing and, and bringing people to Christ because only Christ can save a person. Only Christ can change the heart. And so now we have teenagers that feel overwhelmed and depressed because media is constantly telling them that we need to save the planet. No wonder we have so many suicides because we have teenagers believing that they're called to save the planet. You've never been called to save the planet. Yes, you need to be a good steward. Pick up your trash. Cut your yard. Pull the weeds. And don't throw a bottle out of your window going down Indian River Road. And if you see a piece of trash in the parking lot of Bridge Church, please pick it up. I mean, that's just good stewardship. Stewardship and salvation is two different things. I manage what God gives me, but I can't save what God gives me. How many parents in here, you've tried to save your kids before? You've done everything. If I can just get them in church, they'll be okay. I mean, you know, you brought them to church and they're not okay. Why? Because you can't save them. If I could save them, if I could save my four kids, I would. But I can't. So what do I do? I trust the plan of God and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God that he's going to save my kids. That he's going to keep my kids. You know what I pray for? I pray that God would send people their way to encourage them, to strengthen them, they'll have the right relationships. Sometimes we're overwhelmed with things we shouldn't be overwhelmed with. Elijah was like that. He should have stood his ground and confronted Jezebel. 
but he ran and he put it put him in a wilderness experience. Number two thief is friendlessness. What do I mean by friendlessness? He goes to Beersheba and he leaves his companion there, his servant, and he travels a day's journey into the wilderness alone. Most people in the church would have a revival if they had one friend. What the enemy did for Elijah was this right here. Because he was fearful and ran into the wilderness, he was able to isolate him. That is the primary thing that the enemy does. He isolates us to to overwhelm us. He isolates us to destroy us. Verse 13 says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself, say he himself, that means alone, when it went a day's journey into the wilderness. From the very beginning, God never meant for men and women to be alone in life. Genesis 2 says this. Jesus modeled this because he had 12 disciples and he, he had somebody to do life with. But God said in Genesis chapter 2, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. You and I were built for relational connections. Fear drove Elijah to isolation. And in the wilderness, the enemy tried to destroy him, tried to get him to take his own life. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There was a young lady the other day that came and walked through our building and she looked at me and she said, you have a beautiful church. I said, you haven't met the church yet. <laughs> this is just a building. She said, you know what I mean. But how many of you know we're conditioned to think a building is a church. Jesus did not give his life to build a building at 3168 Indian River Road. He gave his life for people. Relational connections. To come into community with other people. Why? Because that keeps us healthy spiritually. Because there are times I'm weak and I need somebody to strengthen me. There are times that I fall down. I need somebody to pick me up. Sometimes I might come to church and I'm very high, man. I'm on this spiritual high. And that is good. Guess what God calls you to do? To pick somebody else up that's spiritually low. Because saved people save people. They, they bring people to Christ. Heal people. Heal people by healing people through relationships. And we're all called to be in community. And number three, the third position thief that knocks us out of our position in Christ oftentimes. Is fatigue. Notice what happened to Elijah. He was fearful. He had no friends. He was in a wilderness season. And he grew fatigued. To be fatigued, it means to lose your passion. Michael Jordan was fatigued. Not only physically because of three championships straight, but emotionally. Mentally, his father died. And guess what that did? It knocked him out of his position. Arguably, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Or the greatest player. I believe he is the greatest player. You can be wrong, but I believe he is. <laughs> the greatest player to ever grace a basketball court 
was knocked out of position because he experienced fatigue. He loved basketball. Competitive? He willed it. But something came into his life that he couldn't handle. The death of his father. How many know each one of us will experience things in life that we can't handle? Can't handle. Just can't handle this. For me, it was when I was 16. My best friend, who was my first cousin, was 18. He was shot between the eyes and killed on Christmas Eve. And I sang at his funeral with my sister. Something I feel like I couldn't handle. It fatigued me emotionally, mentally. I didn't understand why. For at least a year, man, it just fatigued me. Elijah was there. He, he was at a place of fatigue. He was wore out. He had been going through this difficult time. He had these great victories and these great highs with these great lows. And now he, he's sitting under a broom bush and he's praying that he might die. Emotionally wore out. He experiences this fatigue. He, he's exhausted. He's in the wilderness. He's alone. He's fearful. In his mind, he's playing it up. Oh, man, Jezebel's coming. She'll come this far to get me. I, I can't go any further. I'm just going to sit here and pray. God takes me and she doesn't kill me. See, we're all good at playing things up in our minds. We come to church and somebody doesn't talk to us. And you begin to say, what was wrong with that person? Maybe they just didn't see you. And we begin to play things up in our minds. Employees think their employer has something out to get them for it. They begin to play things up. How many of you know your greatest battle is up here? It's up here. Gotta be very honest when, when COVID hit last March. Over a year ago, every pastor said, uh-oh, we got some problems, Houston. What's going to happen? And the enemy plagues pastors' minds. Why? Because we're human too. You know I have the same problems you have? I've got four of them. i got four kids. And they're great kids. I don't care how great they are. They all want money. And Cash App is from the devil. <laughs> we, we all have problems. We all deal with these things and we become emotionally and physically fatigued. We have problems in our homes. We deal with family members who are addicted to different drugs and substances and, and we have to deal with that and we become fatigued, we, we become trained and some of the, the training is not our own problems but it's the problems of other people that we take on. But Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He said, learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Your shoulders were never meant to carry burdens. Only Jesus' shoulders can do that. So if you're a businessman in here today or a businesswoman, you need employees, give it to Jesus. If you're a single-parent mom, you need finances. You need provision. You give it to Jesus. If you're a married couple in here today and COVID has overwhelmed your marriage and you never thought you would have to work in the same house together. 
How many of you know most men use work as an out? That's why they're real happy when they leave in the morning. <laughs> Give it to Jesus. Maybe your body's ravaged by some disease. Give it to Jesus. Elijah was saying he wanted to die. And God gave him a prescription. He told him to sleep. Say sleep. I mean, you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sleep. say that to Elijah because Elijah was out of position. He was out of position. He couldn't rebound in the place he was at. Fear, friendlessness, and fatigue had pushed him over the edge. And he's in a lonely place and God whispers to him, Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Maybe God is asking us that today. What are you doing here? What brought you to the place that you're at today, mentally, emotionally? Why are what pushed you there? What brought you 
into this wilderness. Elijah, I didn't bring you here. I didn't tell you to run. But you're here, Elijah, and I'm going to ask you this question one more time. What are you doing here? But after the earthquake, the fire, the wind, he says this, that God spoke to him in a gentle whisper. I believe during this season, we don't need fire, we don't need an earthquake, and we don't need a big wind. We just need that gentle whisper. And in his wilderness experience, Elijah was able to hear the whispers of God. The whisper of God. I believe there are people in here, you need to hear the whisper of God. God giving you solutions for your circumstances. Because you spent all week trying to save yourself. You spent all week trying to save your family, save your job, save your business, and now you need to hear the whisper of God. I know Pentecostal charismatic people, they want earthquakes, they want wind and fire. But sometimes I just need the whisper of God. It's going to be okay. Just rest. Sometimes God will just speak to me and say, it's not your church. It's mine. Chill out. Sit on your back deck. Look at the water. Stop working so hard. You can't save it. And my natural tendency, because I'm a high D personality, is to fix it. And even when my wife brings me a problem, I immediately try to fix it. She says, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. Thank you. 